You're listening to Accounting Matters, an accounting podcast powered by Embark about accounting matters, because accounting matters. On today's episode, I'm joined by Managing Director Matt Schwartz to talk about fair value measurements in financial reporting. Matt and I hit the highlights on why fair value is important to use of the financial statements, discuss key concepts included in the fair value guidance, and even discuss some recent FASB developments in the space. By the end of our conversation, I think it's fair to say we will all have our fair share of fair value accounting for the day. This is Adam Olson, Embark's Accounting Advisory Practice Leader, joining you from Embark's headquarters in Dallas, Texas on another episode of Accounting Matters. We're taking things a little bit more intimate today. You'll notice uh, my other co-host, Zach, is not here, but don't worry. He, he will make a return uh, on a future episode. Uh, but I am welcoming a new face and a new voice and a new guest, I guess, um, into the studio today, uh, Matt Schwartz, who's a managing director in our accounting advisory practice in Dallas. On today's episode, we're diving into an area of gap that I know Matt himself has a lot of um, experience in in his past, and that's around fair value measurements. So welcome, Matt. I'm glad to have you here today. Thank you. Happy to be here. Awesome. So before we get into the conversation, um, I thought it would be a bit helpful just to set the stage for why the concept of fair value is so important. Um, so the original standard around fair value actually came out you know, pre-codification back in 2006, and it was really um, issued as a way to you know, respond to investors' needs for relevant and reliable and consistent financial information around fair value measurements. Since the inception of that standard, though, you know, there have been a number of changes in the fair value standard, lots of um, standard updates and targeted improvements to help enhance the overall purpose of the original fair value standard, and we continue to see those updates today. There's many areas of GAAP that references fair value, so you know, a lot of those areas are either required or permitted by GAAP to use fair value measurements, so you definitely see this topic popping up from time to time in multiple areas of GAAP. So it's definitely important, um, an important concept to make sure that you feel comfortable with. You know, one thing to keep in mind, and we'll get into this more today in today's conversation, is that fair value really is centered on kind of a market-based measurement um, rather than using the entity's own specific, you know, measurements or assumptions. So when we hear things that are based on something outside the entity, you know, a lot of times that familiar phrase pops up in accounting where judgment is required, and we'll definitely talk about judgments and some of the concepts around fair value where judgment is necessary. So Matt, with that out of the way, maybe you can give us a quick just, you know, overview of the standard, you know, give our listeners a quick sneak peek of what ASC 820 is all about. Sure. So really at its core, ASC 820 uh, defines fair value. It provides a framework for measuring fair value in accordance with GAAP and requires pretty extensive disclosures around those fair value measurements. So I think really at its core, if there's one takeaway from all this today, it's that fair value is measured based on an exit price. So not the transaction price, not an entry price. And that exit price is is determined based on several key concepts. So it's really critical that preparers understand these concepts and their interaction. And they include unit of account, uh, principal or most advantageous market, the highest and best use for non-financial assets, the use and the weighting of multiple valuation approaches and or techniques, and then the fair value hierarchy. So preparers also need to understand that valuation theory um, is critical in ensuring that their fair value measurements comply with GAAP under the accounting. Sounds like a, a lot of buzzwords in there. That <laughs> Definitely, a lot to unpack. Yeah, and I know we'll, we'll talk about some of those specific concepts um, during our discussion today, but 
maybe be helpful just to kind of talk about, you know, I, I kind of alluded to this in the intro that the concept of fair value tends to sneak up in different areas of gap around different transaction types, things of that nature. So what are some, you know, maybe outside of the typical investment company who's got debt and equity securities, what are other, you know, common areas where preparers, you know, might come across the need to make fair value measurements? Yeah, I mean, you nailed it. It, it pops up throughout the codification in multiple areas. So really, you know, anytime the accounting pronouncements require or permit fair value measurements, measurements that are based on fair value, so that could be fair value, less cost to sell, as well as the disclosures around fair value measurements. And, and there are a few limited exceptions, but there's a very lengthy list of accounting standards that call for the use of fair value guidance under 820. Um, so I'm going to spare everyone the, the <laughs> time and, and rattling off that entire list. But really, some of the more common or significant standards where we see this most often yep. and that call for fair value measurements would be goodwill and intangibles under ASC 350, business combinations under ASC 805, um, exit and disposal cost under ASC 420, and then property plant and equipment impairments under ASC 360. So um, those are a few of the, the big examples. Anything else you might want to add to that? Yeah, no, uh, you know, I would say definitely from Embark's inspector perspective, we come across that type of work um, pretty frequently where, where fair value measures are needed. I would say some of the other common areas that we see are, are around derivative instruments, particularly in the debt and equity financing. If you're bifurcating conversion options or puts or calls or things like that, having to measure those at fair value. Um, kind of on a related note to business combinations, you know, asset acquisitions you know, have a measurement based on fair value because you use a relative fair value allocation for allocating the consideration there. Um, and then, you know, particular to some of the, you know, oil and gas industries or similar industries like that, you know, asset retirement obligations is another area we, we tend to see um, the need for fair value measurements. Um, one I didn't mention, and I think, you know, a lot of people often ask um, about is around share-based compensation, so ASC 718, and whether or not that is truly a fair value measurement. And again, I think it alludes back to the point you made about measurements based on fair value. So it is a fair value-based measurement, and so in a lot of cases, you will need a fair value measure as an input, um, oftentimes to other valuation techniques that are used under um, ASC 718. So. Definitely want to just point that out to, um, to our listeners because I know we've done some past episodes on, on share-based compensation as well. So now that we've kind of hit the overview and the scope, uh, let's maybe circle back to some of those you know, buzzword concepts that you mentioned. You know, we could probably spend numerous episodes talking about any of those at length and in much more detail, but Maybe just for um, kind of hitting the highlights, um, we can kind of just dig in a little bit on each of those. So I think the first one you measure, or sorry, that you mentioned was, you know, figuring out what you actually are trying to measure. So the unit of account. So if someone's going through their fair value assessment measurement for the first time, how do they need to be thinking about the unit of account? Yeah, and, and like many of these concepts, this is really a critical one to as kind of the first step of applying the guidance. And um, I, I think one, one thing here is it can really be easy to overlook this step. Sometimes yep. it seems very obvious yep. and, and natural what the unit of account is. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. Um, but there are some nuances to consider. So, um, you know, a fair value measurements performed for a particular asset or liability. And the characteristics of those assets or liabilities need to be taken into account when um, determining what a market participant would consider 
um, when pricing that asset or liability. So a couple of the key characteristics would include the condition and or the location of the asset or liability, and then any restrictions on the sale or the use of that asset. Um, an asset or liability could be uh, that's measured at fair value could be just a standalone asset or liability, and, and that's where, you know, in those examples like a financial instrument, an investment property, or warrant liability, maybe that unit of accounts is a little bit more obvious. Right. But then we could also have a group of assets. We could have a group of liabilities, or we could have a combination. So, a group of assets and liabilities in you know in the example of a reporting unit or or where an entire business is subject to fair value measurement. Yeah, so, so don't, I guess, point here, don't shortcut the unit of account, um, especially when you're thinking about multiple assets or liabilities and whether or not that should be, you know, a, a combined single measurement or a bunch of separate measurements. For sure, yeah. It may be a quick exercise, but it's one you can't skip over. Right. So you mentioned the term, and I think I alluded to this as well in kind of the intro, that fair value centers around market-based considerations. You use the word market participant. Um, which I know is kind of central to the concept of fair value. Um, can you talk a bit about what exactly it means to use a market participant assumption? Yeah, and again, this is another critical one. It's one that may not seem obvious at, at first um, glance when you're applying this guidance. But you know, again, it's, it's a market-based measurement, not an entity-specific measurement. So that's a real key takeaway there. So when we think about that, you know, management's intended use of an asset or its you know, planned method of settling a liability uh, is not relevant when measuring fair value. So again, that's that's kind of a key concept that maybe isn't super obvious to yeah. people that aren't familiar with ASC 820. Um, so instead, the fair value of an asset or liability should be determined based on a hypothetical transaction at the measurement date and considered from the perspective of a market participant. Um, so for an example of this, if, if a market participant is likely to assign value to an asset acquired in a business um, or in a business combination, the market participant assumption should be incorporated in determining the fair value, even if the acquiring company doesn't necessarily intend to use that asset. So again, not as as obvious as you might think, right. um, but it's it's really critical in getting that determine, determination right because the entity's use and a market participant's use could be vastly different. Right. Case. And if I remember back to like my auditing days, I know a lot of times when clients are using what we might consider entity specific, there's usually them trying to make the argument about why an entity specific assumption is the same as a market participants assumption. So right. maybe a higher hurdle to clear, but you know, in some cases it may make sense that they do kind of cross over. For sure. And and again, we you know, you mentioned judgment being required. Right. That's a theme throughout all of this. And certainly in identifying and, and recognizing what a market participants assumptions would be is of course going to require some judgment from the entity as well. Yeah. And just if people are wondering, you don't specifically have to actually identify who is the market participant. It's really just thinking about like who the entity would more or less transact with in, a, in the market for that particular asset or liability, you know, when they're thinking about the, the fair value determination. And also that market participants could change over time. Um, sure. You know, if your market participant, for example, maybe was a strategic buyer, um, when you're thinking about valuing a business and fast forward, it's no longer a strategic investment. It's now maybe a financial buyer that's coming in. You might have different assumptions. Yeah, you're changing who the buyer might be. So we mentioned market participants. So I think naturally the next maybe segue is to the markets in which those market participants uh, participate. So 
Can you talk a bit about why it's important to determine the market itself? Yeah, and, and again, I mean, we're seeing a theme here, right? That at face value, that might seem obvious what the you know what the market participant is. Yeah. But again, this this is something that can require some some judgment, careful consideration. So, again, one of one of the key concepts is just it's, it's evaluation based on the principal market. And in the absence of a principal market, it could be the most advantageous market. So to kind of define that a little bit further, the principal market is the market with the greatest level of greatest volume and level of activity for that particular asset or liability that's being measured. So the market where the reporting entity or a business unit within the overall reporting entity would normally enter into a transaction to sell an asset or settle a liability is generally presumed to be the principal market, uh, unless there's evidence to the contrary of that, right. of course. Another concept is that principal market must be available to the reporting entity and accessible. So that's you know kind of a, a key consideration there. So if there is a principal market, fair value should be determined using prices in that market. If there's not a principal market, or, or if the reporting entity doesn't have access to that principal market, then the fair value should be based on the price that's in the most advantageous market. So that would be considered the market where the entity could maximize uh, the amount that they're receiving in, in the case of selling an asset or minimizing the amount that would be paid to transfer a liability. Okay, so I think earlier you'd mentioned like in a, in a business combination, um, a reporting entity, when they're thinking about market participants, you know, shouldn't necessarily factor in if they don't plan to use an asset that that should factor into the fair value of that asset. So I think that kind of opened up the conversation around this this phrase of the highest and best use of the asset that must be considered when you're evaluating fair value. Can you talk about maybe what type of assets the concept of highest and best use applies to and what people need to think about when they're trying to assess the highest and best use of an asset or liability? Yeah, so I think the, the first key here is that you know this, this highest and best use concept applies to non-financial assets. So when we say non-financial assets, that could be you know, tangible things like buildings, land, equipment. Um, it could also include intangible assets like intellectual property or patents, for example. So again, this, this highest and best use concept, only non-financial assets. It's going to take into account a market participant's ability to generate economic benefit using an asset in a way that's physically possible, legally permissible, and financially feasible. So those are kind of the three real criteria you need to consider when thinking about what is the highest and best use of a particular asset. It, it's also determined, again, using the perspective of a market participant. So like you said before, even if the reporting entity intends to use it you know, in a different purpose. So when we determine the highest and best use, the reporting entity needs to consider whether the financial non-financial asset would provide maximum value to the market participant on its own or used in combination with other assets or other liabilities. Yeah, and that makes sense. And I know there's probably people out there thinking, as we mentioned the word non-financial asset, it only applies to non-financial assets. Um, why is that the case? And, and it's pretty simple here. It's, it's namely because financial assets themselves don't have any alternative uses to consider. Right. They are what they are. Yeah. So let's round out kind of our conceptual discussion, uh, talking about the different valuation approaches and techniques. I know, like I said earlier, there's certain aspects of, you know, when you kind of dig into the guidance here that you could spend a significant amount of time. This is definitely one of those areas and, and by no means do we plan to get into the nuances or the theories or techniques around any of these different approaches. But 
maybe more just high level if we can talk about what are the broader approaches that the, the standard alludes to for how you should measure or make your fair value measurements. And then maybe if you could give us just some examples that are commonly used in practice under each of those broader approaches. Sure, yeah. So like you said, when we get into this topic in valuation theory, we could we could spend days on end on each one of these approaches. And, and I wouldn't be the one talking about that. I'll say that fairly. <laughs> right. So <laughs> I, need, uh, I need someone much more uh, attuned to the valuation theory than myself to help guide that conversation. For sure. So so we'll start with just what are the three broad valuation approaches under ASC 820? And so that's going to include the market approach, the income approach, and the cost approach. So like I said, in each one of these, you know, I'll kind of discuss a little bit of what that entails and then give some examples of where that would apply, um, but not really get into the more complex, you know, theory and the real valuation modeling and stuff right. behind that. So, um, so we'll start with market. So the market approach may also be referred to kind of generically as mark to market. You know, that could include a wide range of things. It could be as simple as a quoted price in an exchange market. So, you know, just a common stock right. being quoted on the New York Stock Exchange. Going on the far other end of the extreme, you know, it could be uh, a model that uses market multiples of comparable assets or securities. Um, so that's where, you know, a lot of times public multiples will come into play. Yep. Examples of those could be, you know, EBITDA multiple, revenue multiple, probably the most common. Yeah. Um, but anywhere where you're, you know, taking data and then applying a, a multiple based on comparable companies or similar assets or liabilities. The next broad approach would be the income approach. This would kind of be considered mark to model generically, but really the most obvious and commonly used one here is going to be, you know, a discounted cash flow analysis. You know, another example of this, um, more applicable to the real estate industry, could be a, a direct capitalization rate approach, which you see commonly. Um, but it also could include things like a Black-Scholes model or option pricing models when it comes to derivative valuations. And then the last one is is the cost or mark-to-cost approach. This one's a, a little bit more straightforward in theory. I mean, that example of that could just be depreciated replacement cost. So, you know, again, the, the guidance requires that entities consider all three of these valuation approaches when they're assessing the fair value measurement under 820. One of the key considerations, though, as you're going through that process is to really think about the availability of sufficient data. And really, in a lot of cases, one valuation approach may be appropriate, right? So like, again, when we're talking about a, a common stock, that's a pretty straightforward quoted price. There's not a lot of you know, valuation theory behind that. Um, but in, in many cases, you may be applying you know, one, two, or all three of these approaches. And then again, that's where we really get into the judgment. Because when you're applying multiple approaches, um, there's a lot of management judgment involved. And then when you know when you use multiple approaches, you still have to get to a single fair value measurement. So then that's where you're going to start applying weighting to the different approaches. And again, that that weighting is very highly judgmental, but it's going to include you know consideration of things like the sufficiency of data, yep. how comparable the information sure. is to your individual company. Um, you know, some companies may find themselves in situations where there's not a whole lot of really good comparables there, and so that's going to obviously require more judgment as well. Right. Um, but again, in, in, in cases like that, it, it's going to be highly dependent on what the you know, facts and circumstances are of the particular asset or liability that you're measuring. And, and when you say in those circumstances in your experience, you know, clients that are going through and having to use multiple techniques are engaging valuation specialists? 
Uh, yeah, I would say in almost all cases, yeah. and it's certainly a good idea. I mean, certain companies and, and you know, particular investment companies may have that you know level of uh, competency and sophistication right. in-house. Um, sure. But for a lot of companies, this is an area where it's really best to go out and, and kind of outsource that in a way or go at least get the guidance of evaluation specialists to apply those different theories. Right. And it's certainly helpful that they have a lot of experience and um, examples from other reporting entities on not only applying it for each approach, but they can also help in determining what the right weighting is for those three different approaches. Right, and also support you when the when the auditor comes and asks exactly you know, their <laughs> five pages of questions about the valuation itself. So. Uh, uh, another good reason to use evaluation specialists for sure. All right, well that that's helpful, and um, maybe just as a, a quick sneak peek, I, I don't think I mentioned this at the top of the the episode here, but we're actually looking to um, kind of expand into a little bit of evaluation series here on the podcast. So. Embark will be bringing in some of our valuation leaders themselves um, just to talk about some of the, the key areas, considerations, best practices, um, the who's, the what's, the why's around um, different valuation techniques. So definitely uh, you know, look out for those in the future, particularly if you do a lot of these uh, different types of measurements at your organization. Um, so let's go ahead then and switch maybe over to the reporting side, which I know is a big component of the, the standard itself. Um, you know, a lot of people that I know have to deal with um, ASC 820 when they're doing their financial reporting probably recognize the disclosures they have to put together as some of the biggest headaches. Mm-hmm. Um, just given the breadth of disclosures, the complexities that could exist in some of those disclosures, depending on the makeup of all the different um, fair ma- fair valued assets or liabilities you may have. So maybe not digging into every single one because I know there's a ton of nuances here, um, which I know you'll probably caveat for us. Um, but if you could just maybe hit the highlights on what are some of the more significant types of disclosures that the standard requires? Yeah, for sure. So like you said, I mean, you know, you get through all the stuff we previously talked about and you have a, fa- a fair value measurement, right? Yeah. And, and that's really you know, half the battle, because then you get into the disclosure side of things, and ASC 820 has an extensive list of both quantitative and qualitative disclosure requirements. And that's gonna apply to both recurring and non-recurring financial measurements. So you know, like we said, I definitely recommend going to the guidance for the full listing. Um, you know, the other thing is there's, there's definitely differences when it comes to public versus private reporting entities. So, you know, depending on which bucket you fall in, make sure you're, you know, following that guidance um, appropriately. So, you know, really when it comes to just the overall objectives to start out with, with what, what are we trying to achieve with these disclosures and, and what are users of the financial statements looking for in these disclosures? The, the main thing is the valuation techniques and the inputs that are used in measuring those um, assets or liabilities at fair value. And then the second one is going to be, you know, just the effect of recurring fair value measurements that are determined using significant unobservable inputs. So those are going to be the more complex valuations, um, you know, the modeled securities. Um, and, and it's going to be with a focus on identifying how those interact with the company's earnings. Um, there's a lot of factors that need to be considered, obviously, in meeting those objectives. Um, the you know, amount and, and the amount of detail that goes into those is certainly subject to some judgment where the emphasis is placed on those different disclosures, um, the appropriate level of aggregation or, or disaggregation um, is really critical and, and kind of requires some judgment on behalf of management to really figure out like what is the right level of disclosure that the standard's asking for there. 
So since there is so much, I guess, judgment required, I know that the standard itself outlines parameters and obviously there's specific things that are required. What are some ways that the standard itself can help ensure that the disclosures themselves provide consistency and comparability between different reporting entities? Is there certain requirements that you know help allude to that or what what's the way the standard kind of pulls that all together? Yeah, that's really where the fair value hierarchy comes into play in, in ensuring that there's some level of consistency and comparability, like you said. So um, in order to do this, the, stat, the standard establishes the hierarchy and, and the hierarchy really is designed to prioritize the inputs that are used in the different valuation techniques that we mentioned. So um, you'll hear it referred to as the level. So level one, level two, level three yep. um, within the fair value hierarchy. And then, you know, those significant inputs that are used in fair value measurements, really two of the most fundamental disclosures under ASCA 20. So, like I said, the guidance prioritizes observable data from an active market. So we're touching on a few of the key concepts that we talked about earlier. So placing measurements that are only using inputs um, that are observable and from an active market at the highest level of the hierarchy. When we say highest level, that, that means level one. So again, a, a level one, easiest example here is just a publicly traded stock, common stock. Right. Um, then when we go to the other side of it, the lowest level within the hierarchy is going to be your level three fair value measurements. Those include inputs that are unobservable, um, could include the entity's own assumptions about cash flows or other inputs. And, you know, an easy example of this would be like a preferred stock for a private company. So having dealt with a number of level three um, fair value measurements in my past, I know that the level of disclosure around level three significantly increases as well. Um, obviously, if you're using more unobservable inputs, users of financials are going to want to understand more about what are those inputs and how did you come up with them. So with that in mind, can you talk about maybe what are some of the just incremental disclosures specific to level three that you would have to do if that was a part of your fair value measurement leveling? Yeah, and, and you know, like you alluded to, I think this this is the piece of the disclosure requirements where the, the headaches start, right? Um, like you said, the, the higher the degree of judgment and subjectivity, the more, generally speaking, disclosure is going to be required around those areas. So, um, again, I'll caveat it by saying this, there's an extensive list here, um, particularly when it involves level three measurements, and there's a lot of um, differences when it comes to public versus private reporting entities. So I'm going to go off my notes here and kind of rattle off sure. a, a lot of these um, just to make sure we, we are clear in what the requirements are. <laughs> you know, again, so for these recurring level three fair value measurements, one of the biggest ones is, is a roll forward of the beginning and ending balances. So, you know, we're, we're not super creative here in accounting. That's just often referred to as the level three roll forward. Yep. And again, here, here is one that I'll specifically mention where non-public entities are not required to do a full level three roll forward. Some other aspects for recurring level three fair value measurements include disclosure of unrealized gains or losses for the period included in income, um, the specific line item within the income statement where those unrealized gains or losses are recognized, and then unrealized gains or losses for the period in OCI and the line item in the statement of comprehensive income where those unrealized gains or losses are recognized. So really there, that's just kind of making the connection between the face of the financials and the relevant disclosures that are included. Right. For recurring and non-recurring level two and level three fair value measurements, a description of the valuation technique, so that's where the qualitative disclosures come into play here, as well as the significant unobservable inputs that are used in those measurements. And then 
going back to specifically level three fair value measurements, quantitative information, this is often included in a table about all the significant unobservable inputs that have gone into those fair value measurements. So again, super creative here, often just referred to as the table of significant unobservable inputs. And then the last one I'll mention is for those, again, for those recurring level three fair value measurements, um, a narrative description around the uncertainty of fair value measurements that use significant unobservable inputs. And really what this is focused on is if, if there were a change to any of those inputs, how significantly higher or lower would that resulting fair value measurement be if those inputs change? So again, really what we're trying to do here is give the reader or the user of the financials an indication of how sensitive are some of these unobservable inputs. Because again, this is where all the judgment and subjectivity can come into play. No, that's helpful. And obviously that list is pretty expansive and there's you know much more within the standard itself. So definitely, you know, take a look at that, those list of requirements if you do have um, level three measurements that you need to disclose and report. For sure. um, you know, one thing I'll, I'll probably add, having worked with a lot of private companies as well um, in my past is, you know, one area they tend to struggle with is when they're having to value their own equity. So, you know, a lot of private equity portfolio companies having to come up with an equity value obviously is oftentimes going to be a level three measurement right. because, you know, not an active market when you've got a, a private company for how those um, shares are valued. So in practice, there is a resource out there. I'm not sure if you've used it much in your in past experience. I'm sure you have. I've got the printed <laughs> output. <laughs> uh, but the AICBA actually has a valuation resource that's really specifically designed for kind of portfolio companies and investment companies, focusing on just different techniques, approaches, interpretations um, that are widely used. It's, it's obviously not authoritative, but it, it probably is considered the most you know, best accepted resource when people are trying to evaluate whether or not um, they're doing their kind of due diligence around fair value measurements, particularly when there are so many unobservable inputs that are being used. Um, so definitely something to keep in mind if you engage a valuation specialist, you know, they know it backwards and forwards as well, and that's usually going into all of their assumptions and analysis and valuation reports. But um, it is also an area that could potentially lead to, you know, comments from the SEC, particularly if you're a private company looking to make that transition to a public company. There's this, you know, concept of cheap stock um, where a co private company values their shares at something, at some particular value. They go, you know, forward with the IPO, it's at a different value and they're trying to reconcile that difference together. And there's usually a lot of pushback on uh, the assumptions used by those private companies when they did, you know, value their share prices for stock-based compensation or other different arrangements where a share price might be used. So it's definitely an area of focus um, for private companies making that transition, but even I would say for public companies themselves, you know, any area that involves management judgment, I'm sure you've seen a number of comments on, on your clients in the past um, or just in general, when you look through SEC comments around fair value, fair value measurements, inputs, assumptions, et cetera. For sure. Yeah, and, and one other thing just to add on that AICPA guy is, you know, obviously it's going to get into a lot of the theory and, and the application, but another really helpful thing in there is just there's a lot of examples on yep. how that's actually applied, and I think that's where the real benefit comes. Even if you are using a valuation specialist or you're maybe not responsible for coming up with the fair value, it's a great way to just get an understanding of kind of how it's what used doing. and what's, yeah, yeah. What's, what it's being applied to, and just seeing some common examples of, of what it really looks like kind of start to finish.
Yeah, no, for sure. Definitely, and I don't believe it's a free resource. I don't think so. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it may be a purchase, but a, a worthwhile purchase, particularly if you do a lot of valuation work in-house um, sure. or just want to maybe understand a bit more, as Matt mentioned. So, All right. So before we wrap things up, uh, we all know that accounting standards are constantly changing. The fair value standard since its origination is no exception. been lots of targeted improvements that we've seen through different ASUs issued you know, over the year looking to help make um, information more relevant, reliable, um, maybe more efficient even for a lot of preparers. Um, can you talk a bit about any other recent you know, fair value measurement updates that you've seen come across that we, you know, our listeners should be aware of? Yeah, and, and you know, really these, these changes, these accounting standards updates, you know, many of them are, are directly in response to feedback from stakeholders. So, Again, it's, it's, it's trying to provide users of the financials the most relevant information, but weighing that with you know, the cost and time required to prepare and, and how useful these... Um, and it's uh, pretty target. I mean, it's very nuanced a lot. I mean, they're not making sweeping changes. With yeah, it's issues. usually identifying a very specific area or a, a issue that had come up that right. maybe wasn't previously contemplated. And a lot of these are, are specifically targeted about like you said earlier, ensuring comparability and consistency. So areas where there's diversity in practice are usually subject to accounting standard updates. Right. So the, the good news is, I guess, from for the current year, there's really been just one significant accounting standard update. So in June of, in June of 2022, the FASB issued an accounting standards update, um, ASU 2022-03. So the intent here again is improving the financial reporting for investors and stakeholders by increasing the comparability of financial information. And this is specifically addressing entities that have investments in equity securities that are measured at fair value that are subject to some form of contractual restriction around the sale of those securities. So again, very specific set of circumstances here for this ASU. So when measuring a fair value asset or liability, the reporting entity, like we've mentioned, has to consider the characteristics of that asset or liability, including any restrictions on the sale of the asset or liability. You know, in particular, when a market participant would take those characteristics into account. So the key to this determination is going to go back to the first concept we talked about, that unit of account for the asset or liability that's being measured. So that's really the first step here. So what stakeholders really were, were looking for and what drove this ASU is just they felt like there was certainly some conflicting guidance within ASC 820 on what that unit of account was and whether including any kind of a discount related to that contractual restriction was appropriate and allowed under the guidance in, in 820. So um, some stakeholders would you know, apply a discount, some would, felt like it wasn't appropriate under it, and, and then again, you just got diversity in practice across sure. the board here. So to address this, the amendments in the ASU clarify that a contractual restriction on the sale of an equity security is not considered part of the unit of account um, and therefore is not considered in the fair value measurement. So again, those are the two things that you really need to consider here. When you have a contractual restriction on an equity security, it's not considered part of the unit of account and therefore shouldn't be considered in measuring fair value. So taking out the judgment. Exactly. Which, That's, which we, we like. We, yeah, which is always like some black it's and white. good. Yeah. <laughs> As opposed to you know, introducing more judgment, less judgment in this area in particular yeah. is certainly helpful. So sure. along with that ASU, obviously, we, we couldn't have an ASU without having some disclosure requirements to go along with it. Why not? Um, but at least with these, you know, it, it's, it's fairly straightforward and, and it makes a lot of practical sense when we talk about 
removing any discounts that may have been applied in the past to those contractual restrictions. So the requirements, there's really three main ones. It's um, including disclosure of the fair value of equity securities that are subject to these contractual restrictions on sale, um, the nature and the remaining duration of those restrictions, and then any kind of circumstances that might lead to a lapse in those restrictions. So again, we're not applying any kind of update or change to the fair value as a result of those contractual restrictions, but we are requiring that those are disclosed so that a reader of the financial statement understands what contractual restrictions may exist. So that's helpful. Appreciate you kind of running through that that quick update for us. Um, and just for those of you that may be asking about effective dates on that, so for public business entities, um, that ASU would be effective beginning in 2024 for calendar year in companies and then 2025 for all other entities. Obviously, you can early adopt um, is permitted, you know, both interim and annual financial statements if you choose to do so, um, you know, assuming those haven't been made available to be issued. So I guess that's a good place to wrap things up for today. Um, Matt, thanks for uh, making your inaugural uh, jump into the podcast seat. We hope to have you back, obviously. Of course, yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, on future episodes, um, talking with us about all the things that you've got up in that brain of yours. Um, again, for those of you that um, you know are interested in the concept of fair value valuation, we, we will be doing a valuation series, like I mentioned, coming up. So definitely stay tuned for upcoming episodes where we'll have um, some much brighter valuation experts come to, the, come to the mic and talk to us a bit more about some of the theory, assumption, best practices, inputs, uh, what you should look out for, common pitfalls, all that good stuff. So. Uh, that'll be definitely exciting to have those guys join us in the future. Again, if you'd like any more information on today's topic or any of our past episodes, I invite you to connect with Matt and I on LinkedIn. Uh, until next time, thanks again for following along on another episode of Accounting Matters. Thank you. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. Embark makes no representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in the podcast series, and it should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors. Information discussed in our podcast may also be superseded by new guidance or as new interpretations emerge. Listeners are cautioned to carefully evaluate any relevant subsequent authoritative guidance issued.